This is a place where there's always that, that excitement about the possibility of getting rich and getting rich quick. One more book, if I read one more book, look at one more website, read one more thing, I'm gonna find the secret. What is the secret behind beating the market? It's a question that lots of people ask, but does anyone actually have the answer? If you're at the beginning of your investment journey, already on your way, or haven't even started yet, something all of us are affected by is whose advice we listen to. Trying to beat the market or active investing isn't new. There's actually 300 years of advice out there. But who has time to go through all of that? Well, I guess today James Taylor has. Along with his co-authors, he's looked through the last three centuries of financial advice literature to figure out why, despite the rise in passive investing, so many people are still obsessed with outperforming the market and how the same strategies that were used all those years ago are still enticing people today. It isn't to say that it's all the same. It isn't to say that it's all a scam. That's the closest we've come to kind of, you know, figuring out, well, we can't beat the market, but maybe we don't have to. So today we're joined by James, James Taylor, who is the professor of modern British history at the University of Lancaster. You're also the co-author of a book called Invested, how three centuries of stock market advice reshaped our money, markets and mind. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. I think this is going to be fascinating because what you've done is you've looked at the history of modern advice around beating the market essentially and, and how that shaped over time. And I think by exploring those themes, we can get a lot of answers on who we should listen to and you know why advice might not always be what people think it is. But I also think there's loads of parallels to what I do in YouTube and I want to explore those as well, because as I was reading the book, I was just like, oh my God, this is just exactly YouTube now. It's crazy. Yeah. Can we can we just start with what prompted you and your co-authors to write the book? No one's really written about this subject from an academic point of view before, not, certainly not kind of covering three centuries. So there'd been a bit of academic literature kind of looking at aspects of this story, but no one had really thought about stock market advice literature as a genre, as a genre, like any other genre, like fiction. I mean, that might be a particularly relevant parallel that we can explore later. But kind of thinking about how this genre develops over time, a genre that has its own rules and conventions, and trying to understand the influence that that's had on ordinary people's lives in Britain, but also in America over a very long period of time. And this is specific, like you say, like as a genre, this is a genre of literature. This could be a publication, a poster, it could be a book, but it's basically, I have the answer to the stock market, you, you know, consume my content. It's, that, it's mm. that sort of message. And it's, when did you first see these sorts of messages pop up? We wanted to start with the South Sea bubble and kind of this famous stock market crash of 1720 mm -hmm. that is often referred back to as kind of being a paradigm of how stock market over exuberance kind of uh, develops and then has very unfortunate uh, results for people. But we actually ended up looking even before that and looking at the very earliest texts that kind of talk about the stock market and help people understand what the stock market is. And one of our arguments is that it's kind of the literature creates the market in lots of interesting ways because without people writing about it, you don't have any capacity for the population as a whole to be involved, to be invested in the market. So the print culture kind of creates that market. So we were looking at all the, the early genres of writing that kind of feed into popular understanding of the stock market, but also thinking about 
kind of this idea of getting rich quick, because that's the cliche, isn't it? That anyone is advising you about the stock market, it's kind of promising you or this, the, the road to, to riches, shortcuts to wealth. And we actually found that goes back even further to kind of the early mid 17th century. So long before the stock market even exists, we were finding kind of self-help books as we would call them now before that term existed. But texts like the pleasant art of money catching and things like this, My which are, it's, it's just a brilliant. It's just it just sums it up, yeah. and it, that was first published in kind of you know sixteen eighties, I think that one was. And there's all these other texts that are promising people, you know, how to get rich quick, and they're not talking about the stock market. But it's interesting when you read them, all the kind of tropes, all the ideas are the ideas that we'll subsequently find when we look at people who are talking about the stock market, are trying to get people invested. But I think the real kind of first iconic text, which is a, a recognizable manual to how to act on the stock exchange, is Thomas Mortimer's 1761 book, Every Man His Own Broker. And I mean, there are interesting kind of assumptions going on in that title, which we can look at, but he's someone who was quite well-born, a gentleman, and kind of he found his way into the early stock market. So this is before we have a stock exchange as such, but stock trading happened in the uh, alleyways around all the coffee shops in what's now the city of London. So Exchange Alley was the big like location where people would be trading shares, nip into the coffee shops. That's where all the brokers and the jobbers would hang out. So there's not a, one actual stock exchange, but the trading took place there. So Mortimer was a guy who ended up there basically to get rich. You know, I've heard about the stock market. I've read about it in newspapers. This is where I'm going to go. I'm going to make my fortune. He lost a fortune <laughs> instead and blamed all the intermediaries, blamed the stockbrokers, the stock joggers, uh, jobbers, said, I've been defrauded. I've been fleeced. I'm going to write a book to help other people make money rather than lose money through being kind of defrauded, essentially. So his book is, is the first kind of how-to manual, which is giving a lot of advice about literally how to behave in Exchange Alley and in the coffee shops, how to buy and sell shares. And his big message was basically cut out the middleman, that the brokers and the jobbers aren't to be trusted. You've got to do it yourself. And if you go to the coffee shops, you can find buyers, you can find sellers, you can transact all your business yourself. And he actually sets himself up as an expert who will literally kind of hold your hand. You buy his book, and if that's not enough, you can go and He'll get He'll be a middleman for you. He will do, yeah. <laughs> this is the first of the many contradictions yeah, that yeah, we yeah. find. I saw that through your work, it's beautiful, yeah. like, you know. Another contradiction, his title, mm. every man his own broker, as long as that man isn't black, Jewish, or a female. Because yeah, he, was, say, he, female. he yeah. was very, he was anti-Semitic racist yeah. and didn't like women very much either. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> this is a characteristic of a lot of this literature, and that goes on a lot later than you would think. Because you might think, what, 18th century, well, yeah. this is to be expected, but it, it kind of remains there and it is still a thing. But yeah, it was so revealing that already by this point, you know, the, 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 the ledgers show that thousands of women were investing in government bonds. Women were a presence in this very early stock market. But insofar as he talks about women at all, he's basically saying, well, you know, surely you've got a male relative, you know, brother, a wow. father, someone who can do this for you. He does not trust women to go into the coffee houses themselves. Um, so his guide is, is kind of entrenching all these assumptions. And yeah, there's this very strong sort of strand of anti-Semitism that runs through it because a lot of the early brokers and jobbers 
a definite minority, but they're are Jewish. And so there's all these anti-Semitic ideas. Because he's lost that, money at their hands, he sees it as. And exactly. And, and, and that persists as well. Fear persists, right? Throughout the, mm. for, even in modern times, you, they sell under a guise of, this is very complicated, it's very scary. And if you do it wrong, it will destroy your life kind of thing. That's, it's always got that message, it seems, from your research. It's absolutely, you know, that's all there in, in, in this guide by Thomas Mortimer that, you know, he has these very colourful passages. This One of the fascinating things about this text, when you read it, it kind of alternates between fairly dry and descriptive kind of details of, you know, these, this is how you go about buying and selling a share because you're cutting out the middleman. So you need to know the technicalities of, you know, the paperwork that's involved. But then he'll just veer off into this flowery description of, you know, that's influenced by almost sort of apocalyptic writing of kind of bemoaning the, the evils the stock exchanges are hell the people there are devils and it's this this kind of very lurid picture that is meant to kind of make you think oh wow this is this is a scary place i need They're, an expert i need an expert so it's that's such a, a a trend running through this this literature kind of build up excitement and interest but also a bit of fear and a bit of apprehension therefore you need the expert yeah i did and it was it was interesting to see how a lot of these experts, you call them outsiders. Mm. So the insiders within the professions, the people who were, I mean, maybe this was later on once the, the stock market became more established, mm. but the people with the actual knowledge rarely shared that information because they wanted to, maybe there was conflict there or they didn't want to. And, and what you actually get is unprofessional outsiders that were the ones writing the, the literature. I think, yeah, there's a big element of that, that the stock exchange, well, the first time there's a building with stock exchange written over the door, that's 1773, and then it becomes a kind of members only club um, at the turn of the century, so 1801, 1802. And from that point, it becomes this kind of mysterious place. If you're an outsider, you literally can't enter the building. So there's all this mystique about the stock exchange, but at the same time, the actual members of the stock exchange, they're kind of quite affluent, quite well-to-do. They're not that interested in small investors. Um, so they're not helping them. Yeah, because they're, they're making money from the commission yeah. and they're not going to make much money from someone who's got a few pounds to invest in the stock market. So that's where you get this outside class of stockbroker who in the 19th century, there's no rules against them advertising. So if you open a 19th century newspaper, you're going to see their ads, quite sensationalist ads, the whole get rich quick, invest with me, you will make money. Um, and they're the ones who are leading the way in kind of popularizing financial advice in the generations after Thomas Mortimer. Uh, so it's the outsiders who've got a vested interest in building the market, broadening the shareholder base. The insiders are quite happy keeping the market kind of small and manageable. The outside stockbrokers are very happy to bring in new people. Um, so they're the kind of democratizers of the market in the 19th century. I hope people can see the parallel between modern day finance where people who are regulated and authorized, say, by the FCA, they will not, they won't talk about finance because there's just too much risk there, not much reward. Whereas YouTube and things like this is where most people are seeking out their financial education and they tend to be unregulated outsiders that are commenting yeah. on the, it's the exact same thing. Mm, it's, exactly. It's kind yeah. of mad yeah. <laughs> how these things just keep repeating themselves. Yeah. One thing that also struck me was, you would have these like, they're like pseudo celebrities like, like Mortimer and there's other people. And a lot of them, they just had very simple messages, but th these are like key diversification was one guy mm. who came forward, sold a message of diversification, but then actually took his client's money and lost it all through lack of diversification. Yeah. <laughs>
There are, yeah, it's so fascinating to, to, to kind of trace the development of ideas and particularly ideas that are very recognizable today. You know, it's a, a key principle of investment, of course, diversification, but we're tracing the kind of early origins of it. Whereas, you know, Thomas Mortimer is not that interested in diversification. His message is very simple. You put money in the government stock, the government bonds, you invest in your country, patriotic investment. You leave your money there because you don't want to kind of give more commissions to the, the, the stockbrokers, and you'll do fine in the long term. So it's kind of what we would call buy and hold strategy, yeah. very, very simple. But then in the 19th century, you get a whole range of new companies, the, the real booming economy of the Victorian age, particularly imperial expansion as well, companies set up for imperial development. So you get you know, the railway boom as well, telegraph boom, new technologies. So you get these huge diversifications of stocks and that creates the idea, well, maybe there are opportunities here to actually, you know, is expressed in the very earliest literature is don't put all your eggs in one basket. So a, a, a kind of phrase that pre-exists, some stock market advice, but it's harnessed in a very basic way in the, in the early periods or mid 19th century, but then later 19th century, you begin to get the origins of people thinking a bit more. Scientifically, they said, it's debatable how scientific it is. It's kind of maybe by the standards of, of the day, but uh, someone like Henry Lowenfeld in, in, in particular was a pioneer of the, the geographic distribution of capital. That was his kind of big sales pitch. His idea was he divided up the country into like 10 sectors basically, and you've got to spread your capital across the globe. And, and there's a lot of sense in that from a basic economic perspective. But yeah, it's like he's one of the many financial advisors who's found to have been slightly more kind of compromised than we might think. Academics tend to just pick up on his ideas about the geographic diversification of capital. But if you dig a bit deeper, you know, one of his big uh, services was send me details of your portfolio and I'll manage your portfolio for you if you don't know how to diversify your, your, your capital. This became quite a big scandal because he was accused of taking people's lists, telling them to sell all the good ones, and then he would flog them other stock, which maybe its long-term prospects were not quite so good. Pioneer in a way, and also a fraudster, which you, I heard you yes. speaking in, 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 in like an interview or a presentation where you said, because your background is fraud, right? Mm -hmm. And you were like, I was ready to be done with fraud. And I stepped into the world of financial advice and realized it was riddled with it. Yeah. Just, <laughs> like, the whole thing is people just with self-interest. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the, the quote yeah. in the book, which it still stands again today with financial YouTubers. There's a lot more money to be made talking about investing than there ever is to be made from investing. I think, yeah, I think we see that, that even going, you know, to Thomas Mortimer is one of our sort of touchstones. And you could say it's even present there because, you know, he admitted he'd lost a lot of money through investing. He certainly made a lot of money writing books about investment. You know, he claimed to have sold upwards of 50,000 copies, which at a time where, you know, the, the, the market for books like that is a lot smaller than it was to become. It's a large number. It went through over a dozen editions. It was still in print in the early 19th century. So it had like a 50 year shelf life. You know, not many books can claim that. And so he's, he's making money through kind of not playing the market successfully, but through, uh, you know, selling services, selling advice that will help others uh, to do so. At least that's the, that's the pitch. What you would think is, why would people buy his book? I mean, if it's like Warren Buffett writes a book, okay, he's he's a successful investor. Damien has a YouTube channel, but he's done a lot of research. He understands finance. He, he knows what he's talking about. Why would people buy a book? And the same today, like with YouTubers, why do people mm. trust people so much that haven't proven that they're like an amazing investor or they've made loads of money from investing? That's one of the, the, the big questions that we faced with our research. I mean, trust building strategies are really 
diverse through through this period and there's not one consistent pitch so sometimes they build this celebrity persona and through our period that becomes more and more and more common and so sort of by the by the late 20th century already the market is full of kind of celebrity financial gurus and their brand is a huge part of the sales pitch and you see elements of that in the earlier period but quite a lot of the texts we look at are anonymous so there's no name attached. Really? Yeah, there's, there's there's no kind of I'm an expert. I can explain this, but look at my track record. It's just this this anonymous circulation of kind of purported information and expert advice that is just the expertise is created rhetorically through the text itself. So you read it, you become convinced because they clearly know more than you. They've written this book. They've published it. Perhaps it's to some extent it's the kind of the um, the guarantee of quality given by the publisher because there are a lot of big London publishers involved in this, but ne nevertheless these aren't celebrity experts. The, these are just anonymous texts in in many cases, and it gets even more interesting when it's these outside stockbrokers that are circulating these these materials because they're often circulating it for free. You don't have to pay for this. They you know they're, they're using the postal system to, to to send thousands of circulars and pamphlets out for free. And you would think in hindsight that it would occur to people to question their economic motives. It's like, why is this free? You know, is there a catch? Is there something going on here? But that authority is just a kind of abstract kind of the authority of the text, the authority of the repetition of certain ideas across dozens and then eventually hundreds of texts. And as I said, whenever you open a paper, all those ads there, and they kind of almost becomes an, an echo chamber kind of effect mm. that you keep seeing these promises. They're appearing in in the Times newspaper or the, the Manchester Guardian, whatever it might be. So surely it's got some rep reputability to it. There must be something in it. These adverts keep appearing. So even though they're, they're not often attached to a kind of celebrity expert, the Warren Buffett kind of idea, people believe this stuff. The same with crypto, right? Yeah. Crypto like came about and people saw people getting rich and they thought, well, that can happen then because we know that. And then they're going on the tube and they're seeing adverts for Flocky Inu on the tube. And they're thinking, well, if the London Underground's advertising it, it must be yeah. legitimate. And, and they're seeing it all over yeah, social media, on Instagram, on LinkedIn. And then there's LinkedIn. someone like me talking about it. And it's just mm. like, you know, it's been waved around in your face the whole time. You, you start to believe it's real. Mm. Well, there's, there are interesting parallels because around the time that, that, that this is developing this kind of sales technique in the 19th century, one of the biggest consumer products is patent medicines. You've, you know, this is before the NHS. You've got a lot of illness before all kinds of scientific discoveries, penicillin. People are basically ill. You know, a lot of the time people are unwell. And you get all these vendors of patent snake medicines. Oil. The snake oil salesman, exactly. And it's quite, I think it's not a coincidence that if you look at a 19th century paper, the, the, the outside brokerages are literally often advertising next to the latest snake oil remedy. And so it's kind of this <laughs> idea that they're, they're almost feeding off each other, people's hopes, people's desperation, um, people's lack of knowledge. People's lack of and we can fix that. We'd yeah. like call this normal. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. People want to believe. Yeah. That there's easy answers to complicated problems, don't they? And I think anyone who promises that will get will get traction if they're convincing. Mm. And cool. I guess they, they reinforce each other. Like all the adverts in the different papers are not conflicting adverts. They're all kind of saying, get into the stock market, you can make loads of money. So every every advert they see and everything they hear is reinforcing the initial idea they first heard, right? Mm. And, and so as time goes on, they kind of get more sophisticated because there are a lot of people getting burned. There are a lot of people losing money. 
And the ads begin to acknowledge that and kind of pointing the finger at other brokerages or other advisors saying, don't do business with them. Don't believe everything you read in the paper. Believe us. <laughs> so it's a kind of this economy where don't trust the others, but you can trust us. And it might seem like a transparent strategy, but that works as well. So there's an element of survivorship bias that I see online mm. where it's like, I bought Tesla at a hundred and it's now worth a thousand. So I know what I'm doing. Whereas actually you're just the one example of the guy who did that. Like you just so happened to buy it. And now they're selling courses on how to buy the next Tesla and things like this, yeah. you know, like people who bought Bitcoin, a guy might've been buying a bag of weed online and bought a hundred Bitcoin at the time and forgot about it. And now he's worth loads, but he's now a crypto trader. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, how many of these people are just lucky or like you say, and they get there and then, they tear down other people's reputations and it's just survivorship bias in, in this, mm. this publication. One thing that I found really interesting from your research though was not the fact that it's all just about making money, but that it, it quickly became apparent that a lot of it was about entertainment mm. and that people kind of enjoyed the consumption, the armchair traders and things like this that never actually did it. I think so. I think that's a huge element in it. And that's built into the genre that occasionally the authors will sort of, will make references to the idea that, well, you may not actually do any of this, but it's, it's useful to know, or it's fun to kind of think about it or imagine it or fantasize about it. So there's a real kind of, um, particularly in the 19th century, the stock market is a big deal, it's growing, but the proportion of the public that's invested in the market still by today's standards, quite small. Um, so I think there's an acknowledgement quite early on that, and a kind of pitch to the general public that it's exciting. This is a form of entertainment. There are thrills to be to be gained from speculation itself, but there are also thrills to be gained from reading about speculation, reading about big stock market crashes. So in the fiction of the 19th century, it's a very common strategy to talk about a big stock market fraud, swindle, crash. It's there in all the, the kind of big name authors that we remember today. Charles Dickens writes about it. And I think that's that's kind of laying the groundwork in some ways because before people can invest, before people have the money to invest, they need to understand the stock market. They need to have ideas about it. So there's a real sense that even if it's a bit disreputable, even if it's riddled with fraud, it's still really exciting. And you know, this is a place where there's always that that excitement about the possibility of getting rich and getting rich quick. And I think in in a kind of by the later 19th century the writers begin to acknowledge that for those who are investing, those who are speculating, maybe the payoff isn't just financial, that part of the reason for doing this is the fun and the excitement, and that that's part of what they're selling as well. And then it begins to get into kind of really interesting self-help territory because self-help literature, self-improvement literature is all about you know, the self and thinking about how can I improve myself? How can I become a better person? How can I transform myself? I'm not happy with how I am. But I want to become better at X, Y, or Z. And that's sort of the key change that we identify around sort of late 19th, early 20th century. It becomes one of the big, the big pictures of the genre. And I think it's never gone away. That's still today, right? Yeah. And I think it's kind of on one level, it's you know, that's fine just to acknowledge that there's a, a thrill element to the stock market. Well, of course there is, you know, that thrill of, of seeing the prices go up and down. But it's interesting in how it features in the advice literature that it that it it, it comes wrapped up in a whole bunch of assumptions and a whole like set of ideas about identity that these texts are always written, nearly always explicitly for white middle-class men. 
basically. That's the market. And when they talk about the investor, when they address the investors, they often do, and they refer to you. It's with all the kind of cultural assumptions that, that, that come with talking to white middle-class men. And then it increasingly becomes about de modern definitions of masculinity, and you define yourself as a white middle-class man through your actions on the stock market. Right. Because to become a successful trader, the market, when they talk about the market, they imagine the market as kind of feminized. This is in crowd psychology as it develops through the later 19th century when people start talking about the, cr the crowd. Modern urban society, you've got a lot of crowds. You don't have crowds in rural society so much, but when you've got these big towns and cities, you see lots of crowds. And the stock market is the kind of abstract crowd of thousands and then millions of investors. And that's always constructed as feminine. And the role of the individual trader is masculine, is to master the market, the feminized market. So they're all kinds Almost of- like cars are always women. You yeah. Know, like, and you know, yeah. whatever, yeah. So you need a strong masculine man to tame, tame the, the, the female and seduce the market yeah. of the, yeah. the feminine. Even though it's all a collection of white men, they, yeah. they, they, they feminize it, yeah. 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 You're mastery over the market, yeah. Yeah, so like key to succeeding is to master any sort of feminized tendencies that you might have or any weakness. So emotion, yeah, emotion, we all have emotions, but emotion is kind of stigmatized in these texts as you need to drive out all emotion and human sympathy because the only way you're going to master the market is to not be driven by your emotions. They're all driven by their emotions. That's why you get, you get the, you know, uh, the runs on the market, the rest of it, because people are driven by emotion, greed, fear. You've got to get let go of all of that. So it's mastery of the self. Can you guess what the biggest learning has been from doing this podcast or even my YouTube channel? It's that the most important investment you can make is in you. So for me, my path to real wealth isn't through investing, it's by building this business. And that's why I'm happy that we're working with Hostinger. Hostinger help entrepreneurs, freelancers and side hustlers with their websites. My favourite thing is their AI website builder, which helps anyone create a professional website with zero coding experience. You just describe your goal in a couple of sentences and the AI creates a beautiful looking website just like magic. You can then customise it, use the AI assistant to generate SEO friendly text and even use their AI logo maker. It's fast, user friendly and of course what I like the best is it's great value for money. You can get website hosting in a free domain from £2.99 a month. So if you want a website, then check out Hostinger. And if you use the code making money, that's making money all one word, you'll get 10% off. And I've left a link in the description for you. Before I became a creator, I was a sales guy. I mean, I love selling. It's how I rebuilt my life after some wrong turns in my 20s. I also delivered Chinese takeaways on the side, but that was more fun money so I could go out on a night without feeling guilty. Sales was where the real money was at. And one tool that I found really useful was LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It's a sales intelligence platform that helps you identify and then get into conversations with high value customers so you can drive more revenue. You can use it to look for key signals like recent job changes, so you can find buyers who are most likely to convert. And because they've got a billion people on the platform, I mean, the chances are your targets are going to be on LinkedIn. Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data so you can get into conversations with the people that matter. So if you want to give Sales Navigator a try, you can get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash upsell. That's linkedin.com slash U-P-S-E-L-L -L for a 60-day free trial. The idea that it's 
tied up in your your identity of self. Did you see that shift at all? Did you see like in the sixties it became more inclusive, or has it is it still like that now? There are there are shifts. One of the big sort of stories that we trace is kind of well, how are women eventually incorporated? Like not so much into the market because they're always there. Yeah. Go back to the eighteenth century, they're there. They're providing capital. They're always a presence on the market, but rhetorically they're always excluded. So you don't see them in the pages of the texts. Big turning point in the 1860s, 1863 is the first text written for financial advice for a female audience. So it's written anonymously by a banker's daughter. Uh, so we later know that it's Emma Sophia Galton, who is uh, a, a daughter of a, a Birmingham banker. And so she kickstarts kick this trend of writing for women, of rhetorically recognizing that women are part of this market and addressing women's concerns, women's priorities, and how to navigate the market as a woman. But it takes such a long time for the, the, the figure of the public a female financial expert to kind of arrive on, on the scene. And they're always in a minority. And a lot of the, the kind of textual constructions of the investor are still hyper-masculinized. I mean, there are lots of examples of it today. A lot of the, the rhetoric around speculation is very hyper-masculine. You move into the 1980s, by which point, you know, women have been allowed onto the London Stock Exchange. You, you would imagine that the kind of macho financial culture would be fading, particularly with the decline of the trading floor for a lot of securities. Around Big Bang and the rest of it, but of course that's the the the, the kind of you know it reaches a new level of hyper masculinity with Wall Street greed is good the kind of yeah, language Gordon Gecko and, kind of yeah in the eighties and like even like and Bull and Bear are very masculine images aren't they or like big power like the the yeah. the, 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 the slang around the markets like you say is very aggressive yeah. masculine one thing that made me think from the research that you did is even books that are celebrated today are born out of the same, like the same kind of world. So to talk about Benjamin Graham and the, the creation of almost value investing mm. off the back of technical analysis collapsing, mm. you know, people reading charts or whatever. And out of that, it was like, let's go to value in businesses. Mm. And this is still logic now that holds up Warren Buffett, Charlie mm. Munger, arguably some of the greatest investors ever, still celebrated today, but they show all of the hallmarks of these other types of literature that we're laughing at as scams. Mm. It's the same yeah. stuff. Yeah. I think. <laughs> well, that, that's one of the benefits of studying this as a sort of genre of writing. Yeah. And you see all these connections and overlaps and kind of replications of history. And yeah, it isn't to say that it's all the same. It isn't to say that it's all a scam. No. And you have to distinguish between... I guess one of the fundamental distinctions is between a how-to literature, which is kind of basically just explaining what it is and how you do it, but it's not making you any massive promises. And then there's the how to win or how to succeed literature, which is going for, it's not just telling you how to do it, but promising you that you're going to win. And kind of that distinction was coined, back, the, the novelist GK Chesterton coined that like, a, like a, a century ago when he was looking at success literature. And I think it's a useful distinction. And so there, there's obviously a lot of good work in this field of people that are not overselling and not promising you the earth. I'm not saying you'll get rich with doing very little work, making very little effort, but all the kind of tropes and ideas are still embedded in this literature. And it's still, it's why people keep reading it is because one more book, if I read one more book, look at one more website, read one more thing, I'm going to find the secret. And it is just this, this lure of the insiders telling the outsiders, look, I'm going to share with you the secrets. 
um, is fascinating to look at how kind of in the 1980s, I mean, this is history now, but when all the public utilities were being sold, you know, British Gas, Telsid, the advertising campaign around that, how it's being sold. You know, th this is a state that's deciding to, um, to privatize public utilities, but the way that's sold to the, to the average investor is in the form of like an inside tip, like tell yeah. Sid, you know, this is a secret. I'll get you in on the deal. So even the state is kind of borrowing some of these techniques about, I'll put you on the inside. I'll put you onto a good thing. I'll share with you the secret that will make you easy money. And so the ideas, the lure, the appeal is, is rife. It is throughout. It kind of defines the genre and it, it makes sure that people still want to consume it. Well, that's human nature, right? That's not the mm. genre. That's human nature and the genre appeals to it. Why, mm. if, if we could say that there's the secret, that the, mm. the promise is the ability to beat the market, you know, mm. why is it that when the market has returned such good returns for a long time that people are so obsessed with trying to beat, beat it? I think that's another of our sort of big questions that we were kind of you know, really trying to answer. Because I think there's a real turning point in the post-war world by the time you get to to sort of Burton Malkiel in particular with the random walk down Wall Street. Yeah. He's the first to really popularize all the kind of scientific economic work that's been done on studying the market, efficient markets, and kind of the idea that you can't beat the market, that you it's just an illusion, you know, and... Uh, the natural result of that is, well, passive investment, that, that if you can't beat them, just play the market, just kind of accept market returns. And he's one of the first you know, big sellers to really promote this idea to a wide audience. But in the same time, his text is, is full of contradictions, you could say, because at the same time that he's dispelling all these ideas that you can beat the market with XYZ secrets, you can beat the market. He admits, you know, like telling the, the average investor that you, you cannot beat the market is like telling a six-year-old that Santa Claus doesn't exist. You know, it takes the zing out of life. Yeah. That's what he says. So even he admits, He's he's a proselytizer essentially for passive investing. A that kind proselytizer. Of you want to hit that? Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what in the world? I know I've got a good vocabulary. What is a pros proselytizer? <laughs> Sounds like a good time. I, don't yes. know. <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder what that was for. Now yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I'm the proselytizer button. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's it's it kind of has religious connotations, but it's kind of like to to propagate for an idea to kind of try and sell like an, an idea. Of that. Yeah, yeah, like a, like you know, you're you're full of this religious intensity, you're gonna share the word that mm. this thing is magic, this thing is great, I need to share it. So you're you're kind of like a propagandist for for an idea. Um, so and he was so, out for passive investing. It, all like the logic of of all of his ideas, and that's a text that I think is still in print, is you know, hugely influential. Um, discrediting a lot of the more active you know, he also came up with it, you know, the idea of the blindfolded monkeys throwing darts yes. at a board and that they're going to pick better stocks than, than an expert fund manager, you know, that kind of idea. Um, but at the same time, he admits within the text itself, active investing is fun, trying to beat the market is fun. And so some of the text is, is about that as well. So it's a kind of ambiguous um, sales pitch. So even the people that, that are kind of selling the idea of passive investment are also admitting that active investment comes with a lot of thrills. We're back to the idea of investment as fun, as exciting. Um, it's a, a leisure activity. Um, but it also, I think, wraps around to those ideas about manhood, masculinity, uh, self-realization through the market. 
and I think the, through the 20th century and into the present, you get that blurring of the, the genres between stock market advice and self-help. Yeah, we, we spoke to someone um, yesterday and they are a believer of active. They were skeptical of passive investing, especially mm -hmm. market-weighted indexes where you know, you're, you're essentially momentum investing, as, mm -hmm. as she put. Um, and what I found was, she was very honest, she said, I've been wrong about this for over a decade now in terms of active is going to make its moment, but active will have its moment now because mm. interest rates are changing. Mm. And do you find do you find that throughout time that people can be faced with evidence that says they're wrong and they still like they still want to drink the Kool-Aid in that sense? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think the the genre of stock market advice is very kind of durable. So in the face of crises, crashes, radical economic downturns and the rest of it, it survives. It never seems to get discredited. The advice can kind of accommodate almost being proven wrong because, because a lot of it places the onus on the individual investor. If you've lost money, then it was it's your fault. It was your fault. Your emotions were wrong. You yeah. weren't man enough. <laughs> exactly. There's all kinds of get outs there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't do it right. So it's yeah. a kind of, you know, that the placing all the responsibility on the individual. So the advice kind of just shifts. And particularly those years where there's such a big battle between technical and fundamental analysis, that it's very easy for them to kind of pass the buck and kind of point to others for, well, no, if you did that, you're, you would have lost money. But if you followed us, you would have made money. So whatever crisis comes up, you can even see it in, you know, when COVID came along, lots of opportunistic advisors kind of saying, well, we can help you make money out of this seemingly disastrous kind of uh, health, but also economic crisis. Um, so I think it's a genre that that can kind of survive any sort of evidence that sort of proves it wrong in many ways, because all that that basic appeal that appeals to our human nature is is still in place. There's always the chance of all right, this time it's different. Particularly when it's attached to a new technology or this time it's different. This time it's different. It never is. It never, it never is. is. Do you find when people start investing in the stock market that they most people, like the majority of people, will be like, oh I'm gonna pick Apple, I'm gonna pick Tesla, I'm gonna like they just pick random stocks. Or do you find that from your research, more and more people are going passive. Like I, I, I know when mm -hmm. I started, I was just picking random stocks, mm -hmm. uh, not random ones, but ones that I thought were going to go to the moon or yeah. be, be up in the next year or so. Mm -hmm. um, do you find many people are like, actually, look, let me just get it in an index and leave it and be passive? Or do most people start active, get burned, and then learn that you should probably be a bit more passive? Or I think it's really is, I, I think, a lot of people are turning to passive investing. I think it's bigger than ever before. And it's interesting how it's it's a keystone of, of a lot of the, the kind of fire advice yeah. and all of that movement. I think it's no coincidence that that really took off in the you know the years of a, a very, very prolonged bull market. Which, They're doing the same thing as well, aren't they? Promising yeah. the secrets to- Maybe for people who don't know what this fire- Financial independence retire early. It's like, you know, I can take you from a very normal job to being retired within a few years, if you buy my book. <laughs> but basically it's live, on, live off less than, than you earn and invest the rest, but take that to a hyper level. So if you could save 50% of whatever, you know, you bring in on, a, on an annual basis, you can retire quite quickly. And they provide a very basic calculation for that. Not, a lot of it's based on like the Trinity study, the 4% rule, and you know, it's just retiring quick. But it's been commoditized in a like in the same mm. in a self-helpy way, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know the 
it's good to the extent that it it is publicizing a lot of good ideas around financial management and and stuff like that and it's it's good that it's promoting passive investment as rather than you know pick the stocks and get rich it's not it's not peddling a simple message in that sense um but at the same time it's kind of all of the you know it's very anecdotal and very this is what i did and sharing the secrets of what they did during a very long bull market <laughs> We're not sure if the next 10 years are going to look like the last 10 years. A lot did. of them earn a lot of money. A lot of them have. You know, they're computer programmers on yeah. 200 grand a year, so it's easy for them to save 100. Yeah. You know? yeah. But they say extreme frugality, anyone can get there, and they show them that, like the calculation. And one thing I would say is, you know, someone coming new to any area, you assume there's a level of expertise that you would need access to to get into it. So if mm. I was going to go into medicine, I wouldn't just walk into a hospital and go, you know what, I can passively chop up anyone in here and I'll be fine. I think <laughs> the doctors are probably yeah. quite skilled, but like within within finance, it's almost the opposite of that. And mm. I think probably why the literature is so persistent is because most people who know nothing think that you need to know a lot. Does that make, does it make sense what I'm saying? Mm. So it gives space for these pseudo experts to come forward and go, I'll be the teacher because it's really complicated over here. And if you, mm. If you do it wrong, you, you know, you're screwed. I think, yeah, it, it's, again, it's, it's hard to generalize. There's so many different kinds of advice out there, different kinds of providers. So there are some that are, you know, stripping it down to essentials and saying, well, this is really easy. Anyone can do it. There are others who are mystifying a lot of it and kind of, I have all the secrets and for a fee, I will share them. So there's all kinds of different strategies for kind of establishing yourself in this market. But I think a lot of it is trading off the idea that, you know, a lot of people grow up, they're not taught, you know, financial literacy in schools particularly thoroughly. It doesn't really come up uh, all that much. So a lot of people enter adulthood not knowing a lot of basic stuff. And so that creates a kind of big market for people who are honestly trying to help those people and spread financial literacy. But it also, of course, creates a lot of opportunities for those who are perhaps, uh, you know, have less, less honest aims and kind of peddling, you know, get rich quick schemes, whatever they might look like. So through the introduction of marketing into the space, so I'm one of these people that I can spread the information for free. People can consume it for free and mm. I can get paid. Do you feel that that will change the landscape for this kind of, because these people, there's always a back intention there. There's always like, a, they want to sell something. They've got, you know, there's like mm. a, an, an ulterior motive. Mm. Whereas now all you need is attention to, mm. to earn money. You don't, you don't need to sell anything. Hmm. I think that's a good point. And it's, you know, getting a historian to kind of make any prediction about the future is like, <laughs> we're really bad at it. <laughs> maybe, maybe people like you'll be studying me in 300 years ago and this guy yeah. called Damien. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, was, he was a dodgy motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I think, well, it, we're st it's still playing out the yeah. kind of the, 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 the power of the internet to, to change a lot of these equations. And I think one of the things is that financial advice, financial literacy education has never been more accessible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a very good quality advice has never been more accessible. But I think it's a bit too early to say whether that is really going to change the picture long term, because it does take people to kind of, does take people's attention, does take people to, to, to follow those lessons, internalize them. And of course, it doesn't solve the broader kind of structural issues with the economy that, you know, as we were kind of alluding to with, with maybe fire, that maybe some of that is less relevant to someone who's on minimum wage, is really struggling, is relying on a food bank. You know, the idea that they can put a percentage of their weekly pay into, 
into an index fund is just that is wishful thinking. So, I mean, financial advice can do a, a, a huge amount of good, but at the same time, it's not the solution to everything. I think there's another conversation that people might not realize that happens is people talk about things because they get views. Mm, um, so, yeah. you know, you, you talk about a particular stock because it's a popular stock. It doesn't mean You're it's going to get more hits, but you get more views. Yeah. Mm. And the views are money. Like yeah. they are literally, you know, it's, it's like you're mining oil out of the ground. You get the views, you get, you earn ad revenue. So people in my space were incentivized to talk about certain topics solely for that reason. Mm. And they're also incentivized to lean towards the negative because that will get them more clicks. And we can see that in the data. So we have click through rate, which is what percentage of the people who've seen this thumbnail have clicked. And if I pull a shocked face, that will be 2% higher than if I pull a normal face, a happy mm. face. So the incentives now to lean negative, to lean towards popular topics mm. will mean that the people who are influencing the market are being influenced by the market. And then you get a point where Tesla is the most bought retail stock on the planet and is by all metrics massively overvalued, mm -hmm. you know, because it's the everyone's thinking, well, if all the experts are talking about it, it must mm. be good, mm. but they're only doing it because people watching it because they want to hear that people think it's good. <laughs> You're okay. it's, it's kind of called performativity, the, the, the academic term. Don't press the buzzer. Performativity. But it's, it's, it's kind of, which is just a fancy term for sort of saying self-fulfilling prophecy. So a lot of these, you know, and again, this goes back to, to print advisors and journalists know that if they talk about a particular stock, if they hype a particular stock, it's going to move the market. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And there's evidence that this goes way back into the 19th century where they're aware of that power. And so it's not quite the same as what you're saying, but it's kind of an awareness that, okay, so what I talk about might move the market in a, in a particular way. And so the, the you know, huge scale of Tesla now, it's, it's funded by that kind of loop. It's difficult to see how that's going to be broken because yeah. the more people are talking about it, the more hits, the more people are going to buy that stock and you know, what will ever break that, that, that cycle. It's kind of mad. It's, it's, it's crazy to me how everything you've described, you could have just been talking about YouTube right now mm. and nothing has changed <laughs> yeah. in the 300 years. I think, yeah, it's, to some extent, that's true. I think, yeah, and we're always fascinated when we see those echoes, those parallels, those early examples. I think certain, certain things have changed, but it's more of a kind of development of seeds that we can see in the kind of 18th, 19th century. You know, the scale is completely different. The kind of blurring of the boundaries between sort of stock market advice literature and self-help literature, you know, that's, you know, those two things have blended in really interesting and complex ways. And that's kind of quite new, even if we're tracing the, you know, the seeds of that back a long way as historians were always looking for precedents and early examples. But there is a kind of change. I think if we're looking for things that have changed, because that's interesting as well. It's this kind of what's often called the financialization of everyday life and how the financial is so embedded in people's sort of personal life, everyday life, family life, to view yourself as an, uh, as an investment. The best investment you can make is in yourself. Exactly, this is yeah. very popular now. And, yeah. and kind of maximizing yourself financially, looking yeah. at your asset streams. How can I maximize my asset streams and my family's asset streams? And it's financializing every aspect of your daily life and your family life, encouraging that sort of blurring of boundaries. As an expert you know, over the last 300 years of the stock market, do you, uh, do you invest yourself? Well, it's interesting. For a long time, I, I, I didn't really, having no sort of 
you know, I wasn't uh, brought up in a family that invested. The, the stock market to me was something that I engaged with very much historically. I was fascinated by it historically. But there's a kind of that idea almost of object distance. You know, you want to retain your objectivity to mm. it. You don't want to be invested yourself emotionally and financially. You just want to study it historically. So for a long time, particularly as I was studying the history of fraud for so many years, yeah, and that was kind of, <laughs> it kind of, it colors your views a little bit, um, but kind of perhaps beginning to look more at the historic evolution of passive investing and that kind of thing. And the key texts of that, I found myself being influenced by that discussions with my co-authors and others that we got involved in the project and kind of so it was a learning experience for me to kind of connect up what I'd always been interested in historically with what I might do with with my own money so yeah it was through this process that I began passive investing not not stock picking this so, uh, this, this process got yeah. me passively investing instead of I was definitely stock picking and crypto mm. picking and just picking whatever I thought was going to make money but yeah no, this journey has been that now I'm I'm a big fan of passive investing this is why I hope I'm a net positive in the financial niche or whatever <laughs> uh, but do you think the overall genre itself is is a positive influence um, I'd say it's it's so much of a mixed picture. I'd say it's hard to to kind of say as a whole it's been positive because there's so many kind of cases of fraud, of interested advice, of kind of selling the wrong kind of message and selling fake hope in many ways. So I think it's a mixed Hopium, picture. They call it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. So I think there's 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 so many examples where it's not ended well for people. It's given people false hope you know, just playing to this idea that you can get rich, you can succeed without really trying, without really making an effort. So I think there is, you know, we can trace back, you know, good advice, sensible messages, things that have helped people through the centuries, definitely. Um, but, you know, riddled throughout the genre, are all these kind of false hopes and things that are, that are delusive, that are leading people down blind alleys. And even with the kind of message of, you know, passive investment being a good thing, even that can be kind of perhaps oversold as being the solution to all of your problems. Mm -hmm. The market only ever goes up. And mm -hmm. it's kind of, well, if we look since 2009 and, you know, the 2020 blip, it's been on a very upward curve and all the people who've made money out of passive investment in that period, great, great for them, their, their timing was perfect but you know can we really say the next 10 15 years are going to be like that so i think sometimes it's slightly oversold as this is a surefire way to make guaranteed money mm -hmm. so even something that is a sensible i think there's so much evidence to say that it is sensible it's a good good thing to do to try and beat inflation that even passive investment can be oversold or given with too much of a a, a kind of promise that you cannot lose well you know i've been guilty of that and i, I would say that the the way that maybe passive investing was, I over internalized it as a positive was, I'm unhappy in my job. Um, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Oh, here's this passive investment. That's the thing that like one day will set me free. Whereas mm. actually what you're committing to there is 30 years of being miserable. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's mm. not the answer in that sense. It's not mm. the answer to your deep, like, unhappiness or just like frustration at your own situation. You might not like your job. Passive index fund investing isn't going to make that go away, yeah. you know, but that's, that, I found when I found it, I was like, oh, here it is. Here's the answer. Yeah. I'll be happy in 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And look, luckily it's led me to a position in a career where I am happy through talking mm. about it. And I think it's like, 
it's like a routine, like having a shower every day. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you should do it because it's good for you, like you say, from inflation, mm. but it's not going to fix your life. Yeah. And that's a, a kind of, if that's the message and people understand that and, and people are happy to, to kind of plan for a long-term economic future through that, then that's great. I think that's a positive thing, but it's kind of, there's still emotions attached to passive investing. And I think a lot of people who bought in at the wrong time to put the money in having been told, well, the stock market only ever goes up. Look at my graph. This is what happened to my money when I put it, put in in 2010 or whatever it might be. Um, it's, you know, there are risks, there are emotions involved that you log into your, your account and you see, oh, I was up yesterday and I'm down today. And kind of, there's still a kind of emotional side to it. It's not going to solve all your problems. And I think because there's not quite that, that, that kind of instant payoff, um, that that's what drives people still back to, to stop picking is always that appeal of, look, I'm a hundred percent up today. Yeah. Yeah, so that's exciting. That's yeah, fun. Yeah, that that's is, thrilling. Yeah, and and would you say then, you know, if you were advising someone that was going into this world of active literature, like financial advice literature, would you say then that's what you should need to look out for? The people that are promising the quick returns, all the things that people would say, you know, get rich quick, and I've got the answer. Is this the kind of literature that you would try and put to one side? I think yeah, is. It's partly that. I think just, you know, stopping for a moment and evaluating who's giving the advice, what are their credentials, why are they giving me this advice? Those kinds of questions should be there. But as well, think about your own motivation and what you're trying to get out of it. If it's long-term economic planning, you know, thinking about your financial future, thinking 30 years down the line, and if you've got money, you can put aside every month and passive investing might well be the thing to do. But if you're after a thrill, if you want that excitement, then stop picking might be the answer, but realize that it's a gamble. Realize that mm. you're not going to beat the market. You know, 99% of day traders don't beat the market. I think that's the, you know, the stats of one of the major studies. Yeah. And, you know, increasingly you're, you're competing against algorithms in terms of your trading. So you might have access to all the latest market data on your, on your, um, on your phone, on your computer, but you know, the idea of beating the market is such a seductive one. But if you're getting into it because of that thrill, that that sense of self-mastery, that sense of self-realization through beating the market, through seeing into the future, um, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it because they're the wrong kind of payoffs to be chasing. And that's where people can get into trouble, I think, if they're pursuing the excitement, the thrill, the self-gratification. You know, because when you, you pick something, it comes off, you make a big profit. It's you know that power of I can see into the future. It's a it's a not it's it's an economic payoff, but it's a non-economic payoff as well. And people can get hooked on that. I think it's very addictive. And if that's your thing, fine. But you know, bet what you can afford to lose because it is a bet. It's not that's an investment. How I feel every day. Well, the single biggest event that brought more people to the market than anything was like GameStop. I, yeah. I saw within my channel, like yeah. I could stand there banging a drum going, you'll get 9% a year every year on average and that'll fluctuate. And if you do that for 30 years, look at how much money you got on people like that. Forget that. Mm -hmm. But this like, you know, short squeeze over here <laughs> on a bank, nearly bankrupt company that I'm throwing all my money into that. So it was like those, those emotions, those powers are, are powerful. So people who are yeah disenfranchised, people who feel excluded, you know all those kind of non-financial payoffs. There's you know it isn't just that they're in it to make money. It's all the the, the kind of political you know it's revenge for the crash of two thousand and eight as well. It's kind of yeah sticking it to the hedge funds. Um, but those kinds of motivations we can trace that back and seeing you know other 
outlets, other brokerages that have sold the same kind of idea. So it's a message of populism, which probably isn't going to go away. And you've seen that repeat throughout history at key times. Yeah, it's kind of really the origins of that one, not necessarily 300 years, but late 19th century with these outside brokerages, bucket shops. The language of that is is very overtly populist and kind of very down on the stock exchange inside elites. And it's particularly strong in, in America where their politics are developing in interesting ways with you know, growing concerns about the, the power of elites. And so these brokerages were, were, were really pushing this, this democratic populist kind of language that tied in with the politics of the time. You know, we're standing up for the small man, the small guy. Like say 2008 might've been similar. People really turned on financial markets. People thought you're the reason that we're like this. Mm. You know, you've ruined everything basically. Mm. How does the literature navigate those periods? Well, yeah, you would think with huge difficulty, but it's weird how they just kind of skate along the surface of it um, you can highlight a few, you know, overt cases where so-called experts, you know, are making big statements in the autumn of 29, just before the crash saying, you know, things are going to go up now is a great time to invest, you know, like literally weeks before the crash. So it's kind of harder for people who've really stuck their neck out. But in the, the broader kind of genre of financial stock market advice flourishes through, through those years. Admittedly, there's a smaller market. A lot of people have lost a lot of money. So the stock market does shrink. It doesn't regain its its post uh, or pre-1929 levels until the 1950s. But the genre keeps going and that's when you get the real uh, flourishing of fundamental analysis. Um, because, Is it like because their style failed us? They were wrong, we've got the answer now. Is it that? It's kind of a lot of it is, yeah, it's slightly more difficult for the, the, the technical analysts, the chartists to kind of get their way out of it, although they do. But in post-29 regulatory cli uh, climate, where you get more and more data becoming available because of disclosure requirements being placed on corporations for the first time, much more extensive. So, so much more data. And that really feeds into the growing trend of, of fundamental analysis, value investing, because you can crunch the numbers yourself now. This All this data, which was private, is now publicly available. So that really provides a, a big boom to fundamental analysis and the idea that, well, we didn't have all these skills and all this knowledge before 29, but now we do. So, you know, again, this time it's different. We can approach investment in a much more scientific way. We won't get burned like people did it's in 29. It's a convincing message, isn't it? So like, we've got the science now. They didn't before. Exactly. Yeah. So there's always an angle. There's always a way, despite, you know, 1929 was huge. You know, like the market loses was it 89% of its value yeah. between 1929 and 32? You know, it's huge that losses. Bit, uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> a, that's a dip. I was like, I lost that last year in crypto. <laughs> it was about 80% dip drop. Yeah, but yeah, that that's crazy. Man, you've got like so much money in there and it just... Oh yeah, yeah. And it's over how many years? Two, two, two or three years? years. Three years, two, yeah. yeah. So, you just, so was it on average per year, like 25% or how did it... How yeah, it absolutely tanked. Pretty it just quick. tanked. Dope. There was some. There was some. Um, there was some like traps in there as well. I think it rose like dead cat bounces, as they call them, and like people threw their money back in. And there was even when rare. it was dying, people were like, "This is it's going to come back." And yeah, people but, yeah. caught falling knives and all those sorts of terms. It's just yeah, people got into you know like 1930 saying, "Well, that was bad, but now's the time to buy." <laughs> yeah. And then they're the it's ones like, who lost it. another step down. Yeah. Have you throughout your 300 years of research? Have you ever seen anyone that's got the answer? Well, you're like, this guy probably had it nailed. Like <laughs> it's a good question. Is is it's tempting to say yes, but I mean it's 
I mean, a lot of people have got a bit of the answer, but in, in kind of like trying to find the perfect solution, like the Holy Grail, it's probably a myth. It's probably, mm. you know, that we're never going to find the surefire route to, to, to riches, but it's the quest for that. The, the quest for someone who figures it all out is, is kind of, that's what keeps, you know, people investing, keeps people reading, you know, whether it's the manuals, which still exist, they're still flourishing as a, you know, genre, the internet hasn't killed them, but obviously the internet has increased the number of platforms. So it's still kind of, it's still going, but if there is a Holy Grail, then it's kind of, you know, passive investment. That's the closest we've come to kind of, you know, figuring out, well, we can't beat the market, but maybe we don't have to. Quick question from me and the Making Money team. Would you like us to come into your workplace to teach you and your colleagues more about personal finance? It's an absolute joke that we're not taught what to do with money. And this knowledge gap makes most people much poorer over their lifetimes. Take your work-based pension. Most people have no idea what the fund they're invested in does, and plenty of people just opt out altogether. We can cover whatever is most important, from the basics to complex financial retirement planning supported by qualified financial advisors who are not there to sell you anything. We take different approaches for different people in a company depending on stuff like their age or their income. Anyway, if you think people you work with could benefit from financial education, then please email will at getmost.co.uk so he can explain more. It doesn't matter what your role is in the business, we want to hear from you. So email will at getmost.co.uk. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. If you missed anything in that episode, don't worry. We do a really good summary of everything that's gone on and what we discussed in our newsletter. You can sign up using the link in the description. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It really makes a difference and lets us know what we're doing right. This is not financial advice. The reason it's not financial advice is because it's not tailored to you. Like we say a lot on the podcast, investments can fall and rise. In fact, this is almost a guarantee. Remember, past performance is no guarantee of future results. So your money is always at risk with investing. Also, remember other fees may apply. I'm Damo. I'm T. This episode was recorded by Jack Hobbs. It was produced and edited by Ruth Edwards. Johnny Hunter is in charge of all our marketing and it's all brought together by Will Stolomon.